Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have two very special guests, writers of a recent book. Their names are Frank Falzon and Duffy Jennings, and they published a book right now on Amazon. has 38 five-star ratings. Title of the book, and you can see this on YouTube, Rockfin, Twitter, is San Francisco Homicide Expector 5 Henry 7, My Inside Story of the Night Stalker Case, City Hall Murders, Zebra Killings, Chinatown Gang Wars, and a City Under Siege. It's an excellent book. I read it in its entirety, and it kind of ties into my other true crime books, and you can go back and look through. Maybe I'll put a link to those other true crime books that I've read about what happened in San Francisco. A lot of these things with uh, Jonestown happened very close to each other, but uh, this is a first-person account, and Frank Zone has been asked to be in documentaries and commented on so many things about police work, but... He was a highly decorated San Francisco police homicide inspector who investigated more than 300 murder cases. He was a principal figure in the hit 2021 Netflix series, Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, and has been featured internationally in numerous documentaries, broadcast interviews, articles, and books. He and his wife, Donna, both San Francisco natives, still in the Bay Area, still live in the Bay Area. And Duffy Jennings was also there at the same time. We talked a little bit in the pre-show yesterday about how they happened upon one particular uh, terrible incident that happened, but saw each other around. But Duffy Jennings is an author and former prize-winning reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle in the 70s. His coverage included many of the same events that his co-author investigated, including the City Hall assassinations, the Patty Hearst kidnapping, and the Zodiac and Zebra serial murders. His character was pro pro portrayed in the 2007 film Zodiac, so his character was played by Adam Goldberg in the David Fincher Zodiac. And he is the author also of another book titled Reporter's Notebook, the San Francisco Chronicle Journalist Diary of the Shocking 70s. He is also a San Francisco native and lives in the Bay Area as well, a place where I grew up. So I know it was very nostalgic for me to read this book because I remember a lot of these, many of the sites and areas around San Francisco. So I'm delighted to have Frank Falzon and Duffy Jennings. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Awesome. Yes, so for well, people great to be here. All right. Thanks, Duffy. Uh, for people who may not have heard of you, maybe you can just go and turn and talk about the background to what led you to put this book together. Just uh, just kind of led what, what, what led up to this book being published in 2022. Well, Duffy Jennings uh, was a reporter for the Chronicle who covered many of my homicide cases during the 70s in San Francisco. I knew Duffy, I trusted Duffy. Uh, I consider him a first-class reporter. Uh, he was award-winning Chronicle reporter. So I had not heard from Duffy in, oh God, maybe 20 years after I retired. And I'd say two years ago, I received a phone call and he says, Frank Falzon, an old friend, Duffy Jennings. He says, how come you're not reading my book? And I said, geez, Duffy, I didn't know you wrote a book. She says, yeah, yeah, it's called The Reporter. It's uh, a book I think you would really enjoy. He says, I wrote about you. Many of the chapters contain cases that you worked. I said, geez, you know, Duffy, when I get off the phone, I'm going to go on Amazon. I'm, I'm going to buy your book. And he says, you know, Frank, you don't have to. He says, this morning I put one in the mail to you. You should be getting it in a couple of days. I, I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think after you read it. Well, I read Duffy's book and I was highly impressed. 
and I called him to tell him what a great job he did and how proud I was of him. And he says, Frank, have you ever thought about writing a book? I said, oh, God, yeah. I said, I had 300 murder cases. I said, some of them were so far out of the ordinary and so so remarkable uh, in the way the arrest went down and how the case came about and the jury trial. I said, some very, very interesting cases. He said, do you mind if I look at your material? So I sent him my material. He looked at it. Uh, Duffy called back and he says, Jesus, Frank, uh, you have to let me write this book. Well, I knew Duffy. I, I knew his work product. I trusted him. And I never had trusted anybody to do this book, but I did trust Duffy. And from that day forward, our bond has only gotten closer in many, many ways. He now considers me a smaller brother. I consider him my, my younger brother. So we're a marriage made in heaven. Uh, we work great together, a great relationship. And I think we put together one hell of a book. I have nothing but the highest regard for Duffy Jennings. Um, Duffy, please. Frank's my biggest fan, as you can tell. Uh, and it, it has been a great partnership. I, I want to add that, um, you know, even though both of us have been out of our respective jobs and careers for many years now, um, there's something about old crimes, cold crimes, old cases that, you know, make, make crime, true crime, still very popular today. And he and I both frequently get throughout the course of a year a number of emails and phone calls and other requests to participate in document documentaries like the Night Stalker case and other uh, others about some of these old cases. And it was really one of those uh, emails that where I noticed Frank's email address was included. And that's why I reached out to him. But it's, it's amazing that even though uh, I covered uh, murders that happened 50 years ago, like the Zodiac case, that I, that I still get these these outreaches from from newsmakers and documentary film companies asking about these cases. And so um, in, in addition to just covering Frank's career and, and we picked out 13 of his top cases for this book, uh, there's a lot of interest in particularly the 70s and the 80s and, and, the, and the, the rise in serial killings, uh, which occurred during that, that time. What, what, there's one crime historian that called it um, the golden age of serial murder, uh, that time period. And clearly there was, there was a lot of it, not just in the Bay Area, but all over the country. So we think this, these stories are still of interest to a lot of people. No doubt. In podcasts, true crime is the number one genre. So people are interested in all these stories. They're still in all these documentaries in the 70s. And San Francisco really was a crazy time at that time, right? And Frank, you started in the 60s. Can you talk about what led you into police work and how your family got involved and what it was like actually working as a policeman in the 60s? It was really something else. I think uh, early on I had no desire to be a, a policeman, uh, but I always had respect for law and order. It was just the way I was raised. But uh, there came a time when I realized uh, I truly did have an interest in police work. And I joined the San Francisco Police Department in 1964. And the city was changing dramatically. Uh, 
just a few years earlier in 1958, uh, the then homicide detail with the same number of men had 27 homicides. And I believe it was Christmas day, they solved the 27th murder. They had a 27 for 27 record solved. All of a sudden now, I'm an inspector, I'm in homicide 1970, several years later, and the whole world is turning upside down. The 70s was unlike any other era in San Francisco. I love my city. I was born and raised in San Francisco to be a San Francisco uh, police officer. I literally thought it was a badge of honor. I was so proud to be a policeman and to reach my pinnacle, which was an inspector, and within a matter of a year to be transferred into the homicide detail, it was like, oh my God, everything's happening just the way I want it to happen. Well, each and every day I'd come into work and it was like, what can happen today? When I say that, we had the, the zebra murders, we had the Zodiac, we had uh, the SLA, we had Patty Hearst. Uh, all of this was happening in the 70s. We had a great influx from all over the United States uh, regarding the hippie generation coming to San Francisco. All these beautiful young ladies coming in with a flower in their hair, singing kumbaya, drinking wine, having sex, and smoking pot. Uh, it, it looked beautiful. I'm a cop and I'm thinking, did I miss something? I mean, these, these people are so happy. Well, I didn't miss anything because a short time later, it got very dark and it got very ugly. And these same beautiful women were strung out, were dying on the street, they were using hard drugs, and we'd find many of them with a needle stuck in their arm. It turned sad and pathetic. And then in the 70s was also the big influx across the country for all the gay community to come to San Francisco, the Castro, uh, the Polk Street area. It was a tremendous rise in, in, in gay individuals. And most of them were doing unprotected sex. And we had the bathhouses and we were literally ending up with nude bodies thrown in debris cans and the coroner was lab labeling them death at the hands of another. And we had no clue what, what was going on. Eventually we would learn it was some sadistic type of uh, sexual pleasure one individual would be inflicting on another individual that was causing the death, but it wasn't an intentional murder. It was individuals making extreme sex that led to an individual's death, not knowing what to do with the body, they would dump it in a debris box. But the 70s, I, I can't believe anywhere in the country was like San Francisco. Yeah, it was crazy. There were so many things going on. The society was just in an upheaval culturally, racially, politically. And what can you talk about your uh, background, Duffy, and kind of your career that kind of coincided alongside Frank's? Sure. Um, you know, and I, and I want to add some things to what he's saying, but, but just like Frank, I was born in San Francisco uh, to uh, a journalist father and a, and a mother with a Stanford English uh uh, uh, you know, grad graduate, um, and I just grew up kind of knowing knowing how to how to write a sentence 
clearly I was terrible at math and science, but I'm just a few years behind Frank, but, but we had so many similarities. We, we loved playing baseball and being part of baseball in, in the Bay area and, uh, and a lot of similar experiences through schools and friends. Uh, and luckily for me, I, I got a job um, as a copy boy at the San Francisco Chronicle um, when I was 19 years old in the, in the late 1960s. And this is just at the time period that Frank's talking about uh, with the influx of all of these um, kids and others from around the country uh, that seemed great at first, but uh, along with that came, as you said, the, the social and cultural changes that we saw that, you know, I trace back to the mid 60s and the, and the Vietnam War and the protests that arose to the war and on campuses all around. Uh, and, you know, then you had the, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy in, in 1968. And then 69 was the Manson family murders in, down in LA. And, and people just started to turn dark and, um, and get involved in more and more violent crime. and and so I started as a reporter, a uh, general assignment reporter, but a lot of my focus was on these crimes and others uh, that were taking place in and around uh, in, the, in the Bay Area at that time. And as a young porter, as a young reporter, it was, it was, it was a great, you know, busy place to be. Um, but as, as Frank points out, you know, by the mid to early 70s, we had not only all these things that you were talking about um, with with the Zodiac Zebra, Patty Hearst, and others, but at the same time, you know, on a national level, the country was changing dramatically. And you know, in the middle of everything, on a, on a given day in 1973, 1974, you could open the front page of the Chronicle, and you'd have a you'd have a story about Patty Hearst in the SLA. You'd have a story about a new letter from Zodiac. You'd have a story about the latest zebra killing, and at the top of the paper was a story about the Watergate <laughs> um, thing going on. So it it, it was in a remarkable time to be a young reporter. And um, I just, I just couldn't get enough of it. And maybe that's a good place to start is to talk about these zebra killings, what became known as the zebra killings, because it's not well, really even covered yet. Uh, zebra killings, it did not get the attention nationwide that it should have. And probably for a very good reason, the zebra killings were you can't use any other word except say it's a hate crime. It was individuals for no other reason that were killing people because of the color of their skin. And it was almost like they were playing a game. According to the witness that testified in court, they had a point system for the killing of a child, the killing of a male, and the killing of a uh, woman. And accordingly, whatever you killed, you would get X amount of points in this death group uh, within the group uh, called the Nation of Islam. Uh, these were very dark characters. They were, they called themselves death angels. And we, we had no clue. I mean, Monday morning quarterbacking uh, by the media, by society is very easy. Once you know the results, you can usually figure, why didn't they know this? But all we knew was people with no contact, no relationship at all to the suspect was murdered. And we'd have a body on the street and try to piece it together. Unfortunately, 15 people were murdered in San Francisco. 
historians now say uh, between San Francisco and LA, there's more like 72 to 75 uh, murders by these death angels. And it was strictly a white individual being killed by a black person, not a narrative that anybody would want to go nation on. So it was really played down anywhere except San Francisco. The mayor at that time, Joe Alioto, uh, this was paramount that these killings had to stop. We had seven teams in the homicide detail. The Greeks, we called them the Greeks, John Pertinus, Gus Carreras. They were the lead team on the zebra killers. Their uh, counterpart, another team, uh, Rotea Guilford and Earl Sanders. Earl would become the first black chief in San Francisco's history. Those two were the backup team to the Greeks. And then we had everybody else handling those cases and then turning them over in the morning to the uh, lead teams. And then you look across the room, we had Dave Toski and Bill Armstrong working the Zodiac. You had in the corner, Frank McCoy and Eddie Erdlatz working the SLA and uh, the Patty Hearst uh, kidnapping um, and the uh, giveaway program uh, headed up by uh, the prisoners union. Uh, it was just an amazing time to be a young inspector working in a very, very um, chaotic situation. Uh, so many things happening, so many pressures, so many let's get things done. One night, fortunately for Jack Cleary, my partner, we're out working one of our murder, case, murder cases and it's, uh, it's kind of like twilight around nine o'clock, but it was daylight savings time. So it was still light out. I have the window rolled down. We had just been driving around town after having dinner and uh, we hear gunshots and Jack, my partner says, Frank, that, that's gunshots. And I said, absolutely it's gunshots. We turn the corner and there is a young white blonde uh, college girl laying out of the car on the passenger side, head first down towards the sidewalk. And we don't see anybody, but we were right there. Jack jumps out, he runs to uh, the young lady. She literally dies in his arms. I started to run with Jack and I realized he doesn't need two of us over there. I went back to the radio I put out the hottest call on the police radio, a 406. And when the 406 went out, every cop in the immediate area closed in on Market Street near this UC Extension College where this young girl was attending. And within minutes, they had a suspect in custody. He still had the weapon. He had changed some of his clothes, but we were able to pick up those clothes later. And I'd say within an hour, I had a confession from him which was a bunch of garbage, but it was very self-serving. He alleged that she offered to give him a ride. And when he got in the car, she called him the N-word, which infuriated him. And he had no choice but to shoot and kill her. Now, again, this case was, was handled by Jack Cleary and myself. Uh, and her name was uh, it was Francis Rose, right? And yes. Cleary, she died in his arms, and that was October thirtieth, nineteen seventy-three. So right at the height of everything. This was 
probably the second known case uh, that, that occurred regarding zebra. And we didn't even tie it into the Greeks. Jack Cleary and I handled that case. Uh, the suspect, Jesse Lee Cooks, was convicted. It wasn't until maybe uh, at least a good uh, 12 to maybe 16 months that we started tying Jesse Lee Cooks to some of these early killings and this group called the Death Angels. He was eventually charged along with six others on the day when all the rest went down for these zebra killings. And one of the people actually you grew up with, like one of the people involved in this whole thing, like was a promising athlete too, but somehow got caught up in this whole... Yeah, racial. his particular story is not a good one. He, uh, he was truly a class act, a, a, a great football player, athlete, also played basketball at St. Ignatius High School, one of the premier high schools in the nation. Uh, I played football with Tom Manny, and that was a young man's name. I would confront him again in my early days on the street in the Fillmore, uh, but he was not the Tom Manning I knew. He now had a process hair, uh, Vaseline face, a do-rag, and he was hanging out with many of the known criminals and pimps in the Fillmore district. When I talked to Tom, I asked him, what's all this about? This is not you. And he said, well, Frank, uh, he said, uh, you know, I was a pretty good football player. And I said, yeah, you were, Tommy. He says, I got drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers. And uh, they cut me. And I said, well, it's probably because you were not that big and maybe not that fast. He said, oh, no, no, I had all the talent. They cut me. And he used the N-word. And I looked at him like, wow, how can you say that, Tommy? He says, because it's the truth. But then I thought about it. And the whole Pittsburgh Steelers backfield were black men and successful black men. They, they had some of the best defenses in the country. So I, I didn't pay much attention to Tom after that. But I would see him at the station house being arrested for petty crimes. And, and then all of a sudden, maybe a year or two later, I saw him dressed up in a suit with a tie and a shirt. And I, I thought, good for Tom. He straightened his life out. Well, he had become a, a member of the uh, Islam nation, and he was attending the uh, religious beliefs on Geary Street, part of my beat. And I thought, well, if he's doing good, I, I don't care where he's at, as long as he's not in trouble, because I like Tommy. Well, he ended up being one of the individuals uh, that we ended up ended up arresting on the day that all the arrests went down. Tommy was a businessman. He owned Black Self-Help. And several of the victims were tied back to having worked with Black Self-Help, trying to help them grow their business. And they ended up being victims of the zebra killers. Now, were the zebra killers all definitively tied to the Nation of Islam? Was that... Uh, according to inside information that testified during the trial, they were all tied to the Nation of Islam, a group, an extremist group, obviously, that uh, were known as the Death Angels. I see. And that there was something like close to your family that you mentioned in the book, too, about uh, something that happened close to home, right? Do you mind talking about that? 
Well, yeah, it turned out to be pretty fascinating. Uh, I was living out in the uh, sunset area of San Francisco, out by the zoo, out by the ocean beach uh, with my wife and family. And one night, it had to be around one or two in the morning, the phone rings, and I usually grabbed it. But for some reason, my wife grabbed it first. And she says, it's Operation Center. He must know you. He said, the murders are right down the street, not too far from our house. Well, I rolled out that night. I got down to the crime scene right at the foot of uh, Ocean Beach, right there in the sand. Uh, there were two young ladies. One had survived a bullet to the neck and a bullet to the face. And another woman, she sustained a gunshot wound to the stomach and then a shotgun blast to her head. The story was basically two young ladies out from Cincinnati, one a nurse, one an art student, and they were out here to enjoy the beauty of San Francisco. And somebody had told them, college kids, you don't have much money. The best way is fly down to LA, see Los Angeles, and then hitchhike up the coast road, choosing good people, getting in the car and getting yourself back to San Francisco on the cheap. And that's what they did, except they didn't calculate too accurately. It was now around 11 o'clock at night. They're standing out on the highway, hitchhiking, still being very cautious as to who they get in with. And a small Datsun vehicle pulls up with an extremely good looking, clean cut black man who offers to give them a ride. His voice was soft. He was very polite, very calm, very uh, self-assured. So they get in the back seat of this small car and they drive to San Francisco. En route, this black man says to them, I'm gonna show you something you will never forget. He said, out at the ocean beach, you're gonna see a sunset. And you're gonna see uh, uh, how beautiful San Francisco really is. So they get out of the car I think it's at the foot of a, a Viceni Street and Ocean Beach. And they walk a few feet onto the sand. And all of a sudden, a shot rings out. And Julia Keeling, the nurse, feels a bullet into her face. And she feels her tooth in her mouth and blood pouring into her mouth. And she starts choking and she starts to run. And then she's shot again and she falls into the sand. And then this man, she sees him with the gun pointing at her girlfriend. He shoots, she, he shoots the girlfriend. She falls on top of Julia and she can't stop whimpering. And Julia's saying, I'm okay, okay, I'm okay, I'm all right. Quit whimpering, quit whimpering. Well, the man goes back to his dots and opens a trunk, comes back with a shotgun and as Julia's girlfriend is whimpering, he fires one blast, pushing Ju uh, Julia's girlfriend tighter onto her body. She's feeling smothered, but she's still alive. She then hears the engine start off, start up, and he drives off. Once he drives off, Julia pushes her dead girlfriend off her body. She runs across the street goes into a house, calls the police. 
and then we arrive on the scene. Julia Keeling ended up being an absolutely marvelous witness. And we got a heck of a break in the case, and we arrested a member of the uh, Temple of Islam, an uh, individual from Los Angeles area, who was coming up with a car full of guns, our thinking, and it, we 99% proved right. He was coming up with these guns to start the zebra killings all over again, so it would appear that the men that were on trial were innocent because the murders were never really solved. We were fortunate, Eddie Erlatz and I had that case, and we were blessed to uh, put it together so quick, uh, they were never able to uh, prove their narrative. It's well, amazing. So a copycat killing. Let me jump in here because the upshot of this all, and I know you mentioned about Frank's family, was that when he got home from 14, 15 hours out investigating that crime, his wife says to him, we're getting out of the city. You could stay here and play cops and robbers all you want, but it's not safe in the city anymore. There'd been other crimes around the neighborhood. And she said, it's time for us to move out to the suburbs which uh, which caused you know some upheaval in the Falzon family uh, among the kids who didn't want to leave and you know leaving the city was a big deal for for a native like Frank but but it was that particular case that um, that engendered that whole family move and yet you know if if Donna was worried about his safety or the family's safety um, it didn't really it didn't really solve. Or, or keep Frank from his most couple of his most dangerous cases, one of which we write about in this book, which happened a couple of years later. He wasn't even on duty, and he was uh, he was on his way to a night class at City College. He was continuing to try to get his college degree, and he was in civilian clothes in his own car when they drove by. He drove by a grocery a neighborhood grocery store, and Frank happened to see what looked like a man. Uh, holding a gun uh, arm's length at the clerk of the store. And, uh, and, the, and the, the incident that followed is, is, a, is a terrific story that Frank tells in this book. And maybe he wants to share a little bit of that now, but, but um, he's lucky to be here today uh, as a result of that particular incident, right? Well, if you'd like me, uh, I can explain that night. Um... Uh, is it something that lives with me and I, I believe it will live with me to the day I die. I was driving uh, up uh, Holloway at Ashton Street just having uh, dinner at Joe's in Westlake. Um, I was very, very uh, uh, much thinking about my class. I was taking a uh, course on plants and flowers and whatnot and and I wasn't doing so good, so totally concentrating on going to school. And I'm driving by the corner grocery store called Selmy's, Selmy's Market. And Selmy's Market was a corner store uh, with double doors. The doors were both open to the inside. So as I'm going through the intersection, I can see right inside. And I see this man, he's about, oh, he had to be 6'4", six, 6'5", six, very tall. And he's got something in his hand and it looked like he was punching people. And then I slowed down and I'm staring in the store 
and I was uh, partially right and partially wrong. He had a 45 automatic in his hand and he was pointing it at people in the store. I quickly realized I was on viewing a robbery in progress. So I pulled my car over to the curb, got down uh, behind a car right outside the store. I got my gun drawn and I'm pointing it at the store and I'm thinking I'm gonna give this guy one chance. Police, freeze, drop your weapon. And if he doesn't, I'm firing. And I looked down at my hand and I thought, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm shaking. Am I, I, I'm thinking like a policeman, but my hand's acting like a coward. My hand is shaking. Um, so all of, a, all of a sudden I remember giving myself a, a real pep talk, like you're a coward, you're chicken, you're, you're afraid, and it's gonna cost you your life. And all of a sudden I was very rigid. My hand's not shaking anymore. And I'm waiting for this man to come out of the store. What happens next is, uh, is unbelievable. That's the best way I can put it. A car pulls up and a guy gets out of the car, tall, skinny, black man dressed in a white uh, polyester suit, white socks, white shoes. And he is the happiest, nicest man I've seen ever. And he's whistling and he's kind of skipping towards the store. And if I didn't know better, he wanted to go in, buy a jug of booze and head over to his girlfriend's house. But I'm thinking, oh my God, he's gonna walk in. He's either gonna be held as a hostage. I can't shoot him, I'll be killed. He can't go in the store. So I step out from my cover, trying to warn him to get out of the way. I got my gun in my right hand, my badge in my left hand. And I'm whispering, get back, get back. Poor guy, he doesn't see my badge. All he sees is a white man with a gun. He said, oh, mister, mister, please don't shoot me, don't shoot me. Just as he says those words out of the corner of my eye, the holdup man comes out of the store. And he's bent over like a fullback going through the line, both arms folded across his stomach like he's packing a football. I would find out later that he had the 45 in one hand and a bag of money in the other. So I turn, I look right at him, police, freeze. I now think because there was two of us there, he probably thought he was surrounded and he fired randomly, firing two shots. How he missed me or the other person, I, I have no idea. The other person, in the white pantsuit, I never saw again. He took off running, never saw him again. In the meantime, the bad guy, the robber, he's heading towards the street. The car that I was standing behind, he is now running towards that car out into the street. He's already fired two shots. I returned one shot at a moving target. I hit him in the shoulder. He's now out on the street. I used a cup and saucer, a, a new technique that had just been taught to us. And I found out that I was a better shot uh, because up to that point, I was one of the worst uh, shooters in the police department. I had a bad habit of flicking my wrist and throwing my bullets everywhere except where they should go. Anyhow, I was using the cup and saucer. I trained my gun on the man that's running away, but I don't pull the trigger. 
For some reason, I couldn't shoot the man. He turns and he's looking right at me. And with the 45 fires, two more shots, I could see the arc uh, in the, from the gun. And it was like a horseshoe of fire. Two shots, I know I'm gonna die. And I remember saying to myself, dear God, let me take him with me. And I fired a second shot. He went down, he's in the street. Somehow his bullets again miss me. So now I, I walk behind him. I'm standing behind his head. The bag of money is in one hand. Some of the money's coming out of the bag. He's got the gun down between his legs and he's twitching. And every time he twitches, the gun is moving. And I'm just got my eyes fixated on the gun. And I keep, keep yelling, Mr. Mr. Please drop the gun, drop the gun. I look over at the store and it hits me. Oh my God, somebody's gonna come out with a shotgun and blow me in half. So I holler, there's a head sticking out of the store. It turned out to be the owner of the grocery store. I said, how many more are left in there? How many more are left in there? He's all, no, only one, only one. He points at the man on the ground. By this time now, people who are in a neighborhood, a very uh, upscale neighborhood, are coming out of their houses. They're standing on their stoops. And I raise my hand up with the badge. I'm screaming, I'm a police officer. I need help. Get me help. Please get me help. And oh my God, I look up and here comes a, black and white police car, red light and siren, right down Holloway Street. And it comes to a screeching halt right at the feet of the suspect. And big Pete Maloney and Officer John Sheehan jump out of the police car. Sheehan calls for an ambulance for the suspect. Uh, Pete Maloney goes over and removes the gun from the suspect's hand. Uh, it wasn't until that moment that I felt I survived this horrific incident. Yeah, you were very fortunate. You said also in the book that the fact that he had a 45, it's not as accurate as other guns. But you had some astonishing statistics, like two, like a small town of policemen died in the 70s, like 2,200. And that's always was an ever-present thought. You was always there behind you, your head about the possibility of dying on the job, right? Uh, there's always the possibility that, but it wasn't something I dwelled upon. I, I felt that I was there trying to do the right thing by people, trying to help people of all colors, all races, uh, all persuasions. I felt I was a fair cop. I, I really felt I was a good cop. Uh, my job uh, to me was, it was help society. I was the individual that would stand between the victim and the bully. And I, I thought that was honorable. I still do to this day. Right. And I mean, uh, you stood behind one of the biggest monsters out there, uh, Richard Ramirez. Can you talk about, you start an intro of the book about you being involved in that whole case. Can you talk about the beginnings of how you were on the trail of the Night Stalker? Is that a question for Duffy or for me? Well, each, either one of you. <laughs> I know. Uh, Duffy, do you want to cover this? Well, I, just to the extent to say that, you know, for all the cases Frank was involved in, uh, probably the most uh, high-profile, notorious killer got most of his detention 
in Los Angeles in the early part of 1985. He had, he had uh, broken into uh, numerous homes and throughout the LA region and, and killed, maimed, tortured, assaulted, uh, sexually assaulted a number of, uh, of victims. His, his MO would be to creep in somewhere in the house during the night uh, immediately go to the bedroom, shoot the husband in the head, and then rape the wife. And and he had a number of other um, similar cases. But uh, but what what wasn't known was that when things got hot in L.A. Uh, or he thought the cops were on his case, he would come to San Francisco. Uh, and in this one particular instance in August of 1985, uh, Frank was on call. Uh, with his partner Carl Klotz, and they got a, a note notice about a, a homicide uh, in a in a residential area, coincidentally also out near Ocean Beach, uh, where he talked about the other case uh, of a of a, a Asian couple, Peter Pan and his wife, uh, who'd uh, been been attacked in the middle of the night, both shot. She was assaulted. Um, she survived for a while. Uh, but when, when Frank and his partner got there, uh, they found the most incredible crime scene that, um, that he can recall in, among all of his cases. I, I kind of let him describe that, but, but um, it wasn't known at the time that it was this walk-in killer or home invasion killer that was operating in L.A., uh, but it, very soon after Frank and his partner got on the job, they learned about um, the connection and similarities between these two cases. And I think that um, when you look at, at the Night Stalker case, and if you saw the, the Netflix um, documentary, the four-part series about that uh, in last the early part of last year, you realize that it was, it was Frank who actually uh, was able to, to learn, determine the name of the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Uh, and once he learned that, he was caught within 48 hours. Wow, yeah. And that goes through the bur uh, burglary he did in the Marina or something like that. Is that right? Yes. Uh, I'll, I'll pick it up from there, Duff. Uh, what Duffy uh, explained is, is very, very accurate. My partner, Carl Klotz, and I called out to street eucalyptus in uh, in the uh, sunset district very upscale neighborhood manicured lawns everything perfect and one of the things we say in the book over and over is you never know what you're going to walk into and this day it started out kind of slow it was a weekend carl and i uh, had an easy week and uh, what we walked in that day uh, uh, was not a typical crime scene here were two people who were shot in their bed while they were asleep. And then the woman was raped and sexually assaulted. And then the killer sadistically went into their refrigerator, uh, ate their food, uh, leftovers from dinner. And then he uh, regurgitated on their kitchen floor, vomited on the floor. He then went into the uh, living room area and with some sort of knife or sharp object, he carved a uh, sat satanic symbol, a star, a circle, and underneath and on top, he wrote Jack the Knife. And then for some reason, 
like he was praying to his Satan devil, God, he masturbated right before this sign, leaving a puddle of fresh semen uh, below the symbol of uh, Satan. We had no clue what we were working on. Yes, we knew about the LA murders, but never really put two and two together that this could be their uh, walk-in intruder, uh, their uh, killer, uh, walk-in killer down in Los Angeles. We had no knowledge. So we're kind of dealing in the dark. We put out an all points bulletin to all units uh, explaining exactly what we found and what a, a crazy crime scene. We must have some sort of real sick, psychotic, insane uh, killer on the loose. And we knew we had to get him quick. So, right, and that was Peter Pan, right? So that's Peter Pan. Yes, that's uh, Western, Peter and his wife, Barbara Boston. Pan. They were the two victims, both shot in their bedroom while they were asleep. He had came through the downstairs uh, garage window, uh, climbed their stairs on the inside to the living quarters, into their bedroom, shot both of them. He left a Toyota tire iron outside the window that he used to pry the window open with. So this is all that we had to work on until Monday morning, an outstanding uh, investigator by the name of John Perkins works for the Glendale Police Department. He had had a very, very similar, similar case, grisly case where the fan was on because it was such a hot summer. And when the Killings went down, blood was splattered all over the room. He called my partner, Carl Klotz, and he says, I might have something that links my cases with your case. Uh, and he starts talking to Carl. Carl wasn't so sure there was a connection until John Perkins said, we had casings left at our crime scene that had pink primer, pink primer on the casings pretty rare. When Carl heard that, he got very excited. I walk into the office. Carl tells me, we fly down to LA. We now believe our, our case is tied to the LA cases. In other words, this walk-in killer, this intruder was working not only Los Angeles, but also the San Francisco area. Well, that those bullets uh, casings that we found were tied directly by criminalist uh, examination to uh, the LA cases. We have a match. So Carl and I spent days down in Los Angeles gleaming everything we could from the Los Angeles Police Department and also from the LA Sheriff's Office Department. It was the LA Sheriff's Office that were the task force leaders on the so-called uh, intruder. By this time, the link is made by the media. He's no longer calling the walk-in killer or walk-in intruder. He's now being called the Night Stalker, going from San Francisco to Los Angeles and back. We come back up to San Francisco and we, our investigation I, I, my partner and I, we pull 
all the burglary, recent burglary reports for several months in the city of San Francisco. And ironically, one of the reports I'm looking at, uh, my son, my oldest boy, Dan, who always knew he was gonna be a police officer. He had to go to college first. Upon graduating from the University of Santa Clara, he, he kept his wish, he became a San Francisco police officer. Dan had made a very thorough police report. And in that report, it was a, a report made by a, a doctor and his, his wife, Dr. Saroyan and his wife, Marie. They list an item that was a bracelet where his license, uh, driver's license number was etched into the bracelet. And we got a phone call from Lompoc, California that they had recovered that bracelet. They checked the number and it was taken from this burglary. Well, fortunately for us, this same crime lab technician that handled Peter Pan and Barber's attack also handled the Soroyan case. And he felt there was a definite connection with the burglary on the Soroyan house and the murders on Eucalyptus. So we're tying all this together. I put a phone call into uh, the sergeant down in Lompoc and I, I'm, I'm very pumped up and I tell him how I, I need his help. I need to talk to his informant. And he explains to me in no uncertain terms, he's not giving up his informant. And he tells me that he gave that information several days ago to our burglary unit. And they said, there's no connection. At this time, uh, my patience had run thin. I'm, I'm a little bit perturbed. And I let him know, I don't give a damn what my burglary details said. I want to talk to your informant. He said, look, inspector, I'm not giving up my informant. I said, okay, fair enough. But I'm gonna tell you, and I'm gonna tell you real straight. Somebody dies this weekend, and I can prove, Sergeant, that you withheld evidence that could have cleared a series of murders, and you withheld it. I'm coming down there and placing the handcuffs on you. Do you understand me? And the sergeant, he says, calm down. He says, calm down. Everybody in the office was looking at me. They could see I was hot. And I said, I need to talk to your informant. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll call my informant. And if he's interested, he'll call you. I said, okay. I'm say within two minutes. It was a short period where my partner and a couple of my buddies are saying, it's not worth getting yourself so upset. And I'm thinking, how many people have to die? And when are we going to wake up and do the right thing? The phone rings. It's the informant. And he says, uh, Inspector, uh, I was the one that turned the bracelet into the Lompoc, Lompoc Police Department. And I said, well, I need your help. Where did you get the bracelet? So I got it from my mother, Donna Myers. Where does Donna Myers live? Donna Myers, she lives in San Pablo. I need the address. He gives me the address. He gives me her phone number. I said, don't call your mother-in-law. We're going to pay her a visit. He said, okay, I, I won't call her. I hung up. I said, let's go, Carl. I looked over at Mike Mullane, one of the men in the office who I trusted 
It was a very good inspector. And I said, Mike, this thing's going to blow up today. It's going to be big. I said, I'd like to have you come with us. He's absolutely jumps out of his chair, puts his jacket on the three of us heading down to the garage to head over to San Pablo. Right, which is in the East Bay. It's in the North. It's, it's, Bay. it's in the Oakland area, the East Bay of San Francisco over the Bay Bridge. So as I'm walking by the cafeteria, my two partners are ahead of me. They head out to our car. I run into the cafeteria. I need a sugar fix. I couldn't believe this. There's a powdered donut on the counter. I throw a couple of bucks at the guy behind the counter, grab the donut, run out, and I'm brushing uh, white powder off my jacket because I choked down the donut. And my buddies are, where's our donut? So it was a light moment. We all started laughing. I said, I'm sorry, I wasn't thinking of you guys. I was just thinking of myself. So we head out over the Bay Bridge. We end up in San Pablo. And the right thing and the correct thing to do is when you're in another jurisdiction, let the police department know. So we pull in to the San Pablo Police Department. The chief turned out to be one hell of a fine guy. We sat down, we talked. He says, I'll tell you what, inspectors, if you need to see your way around town, would you like to have one of my uh, detectives go with you? I said, boy, that would be a blessing. Thank you, chief. So he gives us his best man, he said, a man named George Spencer. And George says, I'll show for you guys. I said, I'll jump in with you. So I'm in George's car and Mike and Carl in our car. And we pr proceed over to Donna Myers house. We get inside, we sit down with Donna Myers. And oh my God, do I now feel stoked. Every question I'm pumping at her, she's answering, uh, what's this guy uh, look like? Well, he goes by the name of Rick. He's a tall, skinny uh, Mexican with bad teeth, real bad teeth. He wears an ACDC cap. He wears a members only jacket. Uh, everything that we had gleaned down in Los Angeles, she is telling us. So how did you get the bracelet? She says, well, my boyfriend, Armando. Now, mind you, Donna Myers is in her mid-50s. Armando, her boyfriend, is 26. So in order for him to have an affair with Donna, he gave her the bracelet. And she gave it to her son to give to her daughter, her son-in-law to give to the daughter. And this was and like nice high-end jewelry, right? It was. I'm it sorry. wasn't. It was very nice high-end jewelry, right? Yeah, she. Uh, she tells us that her boyfriend Armando came from El Paso, Texas, with Rick. They're inseparable. They're Satan worshippers. They believe in the devil, not God. It's it's all about the devil, and all the evil stuff they do is dedicated to the devil. So all of a sudden, the picture is becoming very clear. We're on the right trail. So I asked Mike Mullane, Mike, please stay here with Donna Myers. Carl and I are going to head over, see if we can talk to Armando. We get over to Armando's house. He lives in a gated, uh, gated off house. And the house is um, kind of up a steep slope. It reminded me of the, the house in the, the movie Psycho. Uh, where Norman Bates lived, but it's separated with an iron gate. 
no way we can get in. I look across the street. We're now in El Sobrante, and there's the El Sobrante Fire Department right across the street. So George, the detective from San Pablo, Carl and I walk across the street. We go inside, we ask the fire department if we, the members, if we could use their phone. They said, absolutely. I put a call into Armando. Armando, I need your help. I have information that you need to know. Can you please come down to the gate? No, man, I'm not coming down. Armando, please, I'm asking you, this is information that you need to know. Did you hear I said I'm from the homicide detail? I wanted him to think that maybe some tragedy might have occurred in his family in El Paso, and maybe he should come down and talk to me. He says, all right, I'll meet you at the gate. So now Spencer, the San Pablo cop, Carl and myself walk across the street. We're standing at the gate and here comes Armando walking down the street with two Doberman pinchers that are growling. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, oh my God, how am I supposed to talk to this guy with two growling dogs staring me in the face? So I looked at him, I said, Armando, the information I have is so important. I'm not gonna stand here looking at two growling dogs. Step out from behind the gate and we'll talk. Otherwise I'm out of here. And I started, turned, started walking back to the San Pablo police car. And next thing, when I turn around, Armando's right behind me. I said, Armando, yeah, what do you want, man? What the F do you want? And I said, what I want, Armando, is to tell you we need the last name of your friend, Rick. He said, oh, F you. You're not going to get my friend Rick's name. I said, Armando, you're not understanding. We believe Rick is the Night Stalker, the man that's been killing people in Los Angeles, killing people in San Francisco. He says, you stupid effing cop. He says, you don't get it, man. I know my friend. When my friend was LA, murders were happening in San Francisco. When he was in San Francisco, murders were happening in LA. I said, Armando, please look at me. I'm a very fair detective, very fair. If your friend is innocent, I will clear him. I just need to know his last name. F you, you mother effer. He is not going to talk. So I said, okay, you're under arrest. I was placing him under arrest for possession of stolen property. That bracelet was linked to the Sarayan burglary. And he was the last person other than Donna Myers to have the bracelet. So I pat him down. He has no weapons. I place him in the back seat. Carl Klotz instinctively opened the back door. I place Armando in the passenger side uh, in the back seat. Uh, Carl goes around behind the driver's seat, sits down in the car. The San Pablo detective gets behind the steering wheel. I climb into the front seat. I look into the back seat. I'm turn my head, I'm leaning back and I'm looking at him and I'm trying to be straightforward. I, I said, look, Armando, I need your help. What is Rick's last name? He says, you mother effer, you put your hands on me. Who the F do you think you are, you mother effer? And I said, Armando, none of this is necessary. 
what's his last name? He says, you heard me, you mother effer, F you. And then he looks down and I guess in frustration, I had my hand on the, the seat, the front seat uh, armrest, near the armrest and, it, and I had formed a fist. And he comes up with his, I, I didn't have any handcuffs. He comes up with both fists like he wants to fight me. He says, oh, you think you're a tough mother effer. He says, you want to fight me, man? Come on, fight me. Well, I learned a long time ago. Somebody challenges you. They got their hands up. You don't take that first punch. So I fired a right hand into the back seat. And I hit Armando right uh, under his left eye, causing about a half inch cut. And he fell over onto my partner, Carl. Carl pushes him upright and he, he's looking at me with a look of hate and he dabs his face and he sees a little bit of blood. He says, you mother effer, look what the F you did to me, you son of a B. He keeps cussing at me. He says, as he's tapping, he says, is that as hard as you can hit? And he puts both fists up again, like he's going to fight me. I said, no, I'm not a tough guy because he kept calling me tough guy. I said, no, I'm not a tough guy, but I'm going to tell you what. I'm going to show you right now how hard I can hit. I'm going to split you from the top of your head all the way down to the crack in your behind. And I started to swing my fist over the head, over my head, directing it into the back seat, as powerful a blow as I could ever throw. To this day, I have no knowledge if I would have done it or not, but I shook the living hell out of him. He fell back in the seat. He put his arms in a cross and he screamed, Richard, Richard Ramirez, Richard Ramirez, man. That's his name, Richard Ramirez. I then collapsed in the front seat and I said to George Spencer, the San Pablo detective, uh, please drive us to the Hall of Justice in San Francisco. It was those two words that broke not only our murder case, but broke all of Los Angeles murder cases. Richard Ramirez turned out to be the Night Stalker, the best friend of Armando Rodriguez. And Armando Rodriguez cooperated with us, became a witness for the prosecution. He was given immunity from the stolen property charge. And when I last spoke to Armando, he thanked me. He says, Inspector, you saved my life. I am going back to college. I'm going to get a degree and I'm going to become a physical therapist. I don't know if he ever did, but we parted on good terms. Something that started out ugly ended up very good. We cleared so many cases and uh, Richard Ramirez would end up dying in prison uh, after being convicted of 17 Los Angeles murders. Right, and it was your warrant that had him held in Los Angeles, right? So it was uh, there was some procedural. Uh, well, the procedural. Yeah. We we decided that night. I didn't decide this. My chief of police, Con Murphy, uh, Daryl Gates with Los Angeles, and uh, uh, Sheriff Block with uh, the L.A. Sheriff's Department decided we should have a conference call. I believe it was at seven seven thirty. And all the detectives involved, the two from L.A., the two from the sheriff's department, uh, Carl Klotz and myself, 
were in our respective chief's office at that time when the call was made. The first one to speak was Sheriff Block. And he says, my men want your men, Chief Murphy, to stand down. Murphy looks at me and I'm shaking my head. I'm saying, no way. Khan covered up the phone. He says, why won't you stand down, Frank? I said, think about it, Chief. We have a warrant in our hand right now. Our murder case for the murder of Peter Pan is made. We, today, we seized all the stolen property from that residence. We have a positive ID. We have the Night Stalker's fingerprint on the Soroyan uh, window coming into the house. Our case is made. We have a warrant, and we don't serve it, and we don't let the public know that someone's murdered this weekend in San Francisco. How is that going to play out in the press? And Murphy nods his head in the affirmative, and he says, my men won't stand down. They're going public with this immediately. And to Daryl Gates's uh, credit, he says, uh, gentlemen, uh, Chief Murphy's right. Tonight, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, not sure which time it was, we're going public as statewide that Richard Maris has been identified as a night stalker. Within 24, 48 hours, Richard Ramirez was in custody. And we were back on a plane, Carl and I, responding to Los Angeles at their request to hold Richard Ramirez on our murder case until they could work up their cases. Right. So that was the hold. And he eventually came back up to San Francisco, San Francisco and said something to you, right? Well, sometime later after the trial where he was found guilty, he had to be taken to San Quentin. Uh, our district attorney said, you know, uh, those those cases down there, the, the trial was very convoluted and uh, incompetence of the defense attorneys was always mentioned in the paper. So that we thought maybe those cases could be overturned. So our district attorney says, Frank, would you please uh, have Richard Maris booked into our prison on the murder of Peter Pan and Barbara Pan? So in case those cases are ever overturned, he will not be released. So I meet Richard Ramirez upstairs in our city prison, and we book him for the two murders, stolen property, other charges, and he's now being led back to the holding cell after our charges are placed on him. And with that heinous laugh that the sick man had, he turns, he looks at me, I'm walking away and he says, hey, Falzon. I had no clue he knew my name. I turn around, I look at him, I said, yeah. He holds up his hand and in the uh, palm of his hand, he had a satanic symbol again. It's a pentagram, downward facing it's pentagram. That pentagram. And he holds that up, he's laughing and he says, you would like to know about the, the two old ladies, wouldn't you? And I, he caught me off guard and I said, what two old ladies? He says, you know, the two old ladies up on Telegraph. That was your case. It was me, Falzon. And he laughs and they take him back. And it dawned on me, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Six months before the Peter Pan case, he had brutalized two elderly women living on Telegraph Hill. One of them had gone to the window, pulled the window open to scream for help. He pulled her head back and slit her throat open. Just a 
a very sick, demented man. Uh, and then we find out Mike Mullane, he had a case where a little girl, I think she was seven or eight years old, had been raped repeatedly uh, and left dangling on pipes in a basement of a apartment house as she was crucified and murdered. Um, again, this was Richard Ramirez and it's been cleared because of the semen left at the crime scene. Uh, yeah, okay. this is a monster. I think one one uh, one journalist found that he was a member of the Church of Satan under LeVay. I think that that was his brand. Did they? Did you ever find out what group he was associated with, or him or or Armando? No, you, no, uh, I uh, I did not ever talk to Richard Ramirez. He had an attorney at that time, which would not allow us to interview him. So uh, Armando. Uh, never talked about their Satan connection. He said, oh, that was all Rick. So as, as much as Armando helped us, I don't think he was 100% uh, leveling with us. Right. And you got a meritorious conduct medal for your work in the Ramirez case, correct? Um, Carl Klotz, the crime lab technician, Larry DeBoer, uh, Inspector Mike Mullane, and uh, myself. Yes, uh, we were awarded... Uh, a meritorious investigation conduct medal. Uh, it was based on that case uh, that Con Murphy uh, wanted to go out on a high note, and he soon retired thereafter. Gotcha. Among your other awards, you show them in the book. You have pictures of Armando Ramirez in the book as well, so people can check that out. There's a lot, actually, a lot of really great pictures of you at the time and some of these other cases. Uh, Duffy, what would you like to add? I mean, maybe you were involved in some of the stories that well, uh, for Frank was. Yes, uh, I want to just add right at this point, after, when you hear this man tell these stories, and he's talking about a murder that happened almost 40 years ago, his, his remarkable command of detail, the memory of these incidents and the, the steps that were taken uh, in, in the shootout, in the Ramirez case, uh, from a journalist's perspective, uh, this is what uh, struck me the most when I started to talk to Frank about uh, about these cases and what he remembered and the fact that he kept a lot of his a lot of his files and notes. That I said, this is this is what makes this a good book because he's a storyteller, and what we did was just take these stories and and put them into an, a narrative, first person memoir form. But you know, you realize that. Ramirez was 1985. This is pretty close to the end of Frank's time uh, in the department and and as a homicide inspector. Uh, I think it was another six or seven years right before he retired. But um, but when when you go back to again the biggest cases, uh, and we talked a little bit about the early 70s, the zebra zodiac time frame, Patty Hearst. It was the later 70s that really turned San Francisco upside down. Uh, and I, and I refer now to, uh, first of all, the, the Jonestown tragedy that occurred in, in Guyana, uh, on, on November the 18th, 1978, uh, when Reverend Jim Jones had taken all of his followers from San Francisco Bay area down to, down to Guyana, uh, ended up, assassinating Congressman Leo Ryan and several news people 
and then in, in, in cajoled almost 900 people into committing what he called revolutionary suicide. That particular week in San Francisco, the city was in mourning. Most of those people were from San Francisco. And yet just 10 days later, on the morning of November 27th, 1978, Frank and I both, both went to work that morning and both of us at about 11 a.m. were notified by our bosses that we needed to report to a shooting at City Hall. Now, of course, we weren't communicating with each other at this time, but ironically, I was sent to cover a shooting and he was, uh, he was the inspector on call with his partner, Herman Clark, that day uh, and was told that there had been a shooting at City Hall. And both of us basically arrived almost at the same time with different job responsibilities. Uh, and yet we didn't really talk about this until we started on this book so many years later of how closely together we had come on that day. But what, for, what became for Frank an, an even more dramatic situation was that the suspect and ultimately the, the man convicted of killing Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk that morning was a, was a man that Frank had not only um, grown up in the neighborhood with, had attended the same school with, had been also a police officer in the same station house with, uh, named Dan White. Uh, and so this was a very upsetting, obviously conflicting situation for Frank in all his years of homicide. Here's the mayor lying dead on the floor and another police telling him the suspect is his old friend, Dan White. And so we, we go into this in detail uh, in the book about Frank's um, you know, questioning and drawing a confession out of Dan White. But there was, there was more to it than that, just because of the relationship that the two of them had. And so, uh, and so, I mean, Frank may want to comment about this, but, but that whole situation in which, um, you know, I'm, I'm sent up there to write a story about the mayor being assassinated. He's sent up there to investigate this assassination. And so the, the irony of the two of us getting together, you know, some 40 plus years later to write a book about these cases uh, is pretty remarkable to me. And that was a huge event. Those two events right back to back were really something else. And it is amazing that you knew Dan White growing up, played softball with him. And you actually kind of followed his life in a really kind of a sad, uh, Dan, unfortunate way. Yeah. Dan, Dan White, as a young boy, was several years behind me at St. Elizabeth's Grammar School. A Catholic school, you're taught the Ten Commandments. And pretty much all the kids, you know, believe in God and you shouldn't do bad things. But, you know, you grow up and you, you quit believing all those good things you learn and you try to put them to use. But some of us step out of character. Well, that wasn't Dan White. Dan White remained a very good Catholic, a very good person. He was a leader of his family. His father had died similar to my father when he was a young boy. He came from a, a, an Irish family. He was told, like I was, you're now the man of the house, which when you think about it, is kind of a silly thing to say to a little boy. I know I took it very serious. I'm sure Dan took it serious. Growing up in the neighborhood, it was called Portla Playground. Growing up in the Portla, uh, baseball was my life. And apparently it was 
this younger boy, Dan White's life. For me, it was a thrill uh, to work out with the college boys from the University of California who would use Portland Playground on, uh, for their uh, workouts. And as a kid, they allowed me to flag balls and run down balls in the outfield. And I thought, how neat is this? But these guys were such class acts. They would say at the end of the day, how would you guys like to hit college pitching? Oh, here I am, seventh, eighth grade, and you're going to let me hit college pitching? Oh, my God. I was thrilled. Well, years later, I returned that. I'm now playing for St. Ignatius High School. We had a great team. We'd work out at Portland Park. And these little kids would say, can we shag balls in the outfield? One of those kids was Dan White. I knew him, but I didn't know him. He's just a kid running down balls. But at the end of the day, Dan White and those other kids got to hit high school pitching. They were thrilled. Well, I'm now uh, the manager of the Northern Station Police Softball League team. And this particular day, we're playing at Fort the Playground, a game of softball against Southern Station. Uh, that's another station in the San Francisco Police Department. And this guy comes walking up to me. He's got a pair of spikes tied together over his shoulder, a glove under his arm. And he said, hi, Frank, I want to play on your team. And I'm sorry, you can't uh, play on our team. You, you have to be a police officer. He said, I am a police officer. I said, well, this is the Northern Station. Frank, I'm at Northern Station. Don't you remember me? I looked down at my, I said, no, I'm sorry. I, I don't remember you. He says, Dan White, I was one of the boys that would shag balls for you when you were in high school. And of course, he jogged my memory. I put my arm around him. I, I knew he had to be a ball player if he grew up in Portland Playground because that's where all the stars from San Francisco came from that were either high school or college athletes. So I said, go take second base. I'll hit infield. He's at second base. I'm hitting grounder after grounder. This kid's scooping him up and throwing the, the first. And he's amazing. He's, he's one of the best players I've ever seen. Thus began our friendship. We would go on to win two state championship titles with an all-star team from the entire San Francisco Police Department where we played Los Angeles, Sacramento, uh, uh, you name it, up and down the coast, any department that wanted to send a team to Tahoe could enter the tournament. We won that championship uh, two years in a row uh, going undefeated. Uh, umpire came up to me at a banquet. I uh, was awarded a plaque from Dan White where all the team chipped in thanking me for being their manager and leading us to two straight state championships. And as I returned to my seat, there was, uh, there was a little applause. I, I was humbled, but I was so proud that my friend Dan White was such a class act. Well, this umpire come up to me that I dumped all the ball games and I invited him and his crew to come to the dinner. He says, you know, Frank, I've been umpiring for 20 years here in South Lake Tahoe. I've umpired many, many softball games. The best ball player I have seen in my 20 years is that shortstop of yours, 
by the name of Dan White. A quite a compliment. That was Dan White's element. Sports, hell of a football player. His element, policeman, great cop. His element, fire department. He'd gone into the San Francisco Fire Department. The apartment where his father was a hero had passed away. And for some reason, he was going to leave the fire department and become a city supervisor. He walked into the homicide detail. And he walked over to my desk and I look up and there's Dan White. Hey, Dan, how are you? So, hey, Frank, I got news for you. I'm leaving the fire department. I'm going to run for city supervisor to represent our district. You're the first one I'm telling. I'm here to tell you first, Frank. I'm going to be the supervisor of our old neighborhood. I looked at him. I said, Jesus, Dan, why do you want to go up there? You're going to be a fish out of water. My partner at that time was Jack Cleary. And Jack gets vehement with him. He said, Jesus. And Jack starts swearing at him. You got to be out of your mind. How the hell would you make a decision to leave the fire department where you're making a good salary, going up to City Hall where they pay 9000 when you're making 36000 with the fire department? And Dan says, no, I feel a, a responsibility to the people of San Francisco, and I want to become a city official. Well, And he was fairly young at the time, too, right, 32? Not kind of like a, he was young. Dan was young at the time compared to maybe some older seasoned politicians. Oh, absolutely. Probably one of the youngest that ran that year. And there was also another neophyte, a man named Harvey Melk, that was running to represent the, the Castro area, the gay part of San Francisco. Initially, uh, you know, people all was probably homophobic. Definitely not. That's not who Dan White was. Him and Harvey best of friends. They were the two ones, two new ones on the board of supervisors. They became very close. Unfortunately, a couple of issues came up where Dan voted against Harvey. Harvey voted against Dan. Now the relationship was not so good anymore. San Francisco at that time, and trust me on this, San Francisco, there are no conservatives. Some people might be liberal conservative, but there are no conservatives. Everybody leans a little left. And Dan and Harvey, uh, the board at that time was 6-5 liberal conservative. And that vote was irritating those that were liberal and progressive. So when Dan resigns, I, it's in the paper that Dan White is resigning as city supervisor. I'm elated. I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's going back in the fire department. His wife, his children, everybody's going to be happy. Dan, Dan never belonged up there. Well, what happens is the city leaders, uh, Chamber of Commerce, the Police Officers Association, the Firemen's Association, they get Dan. You can't resign. You got to go get it back. You're a representative. You're letting all of us down. Dan being this naive, nice guy, he can't let his friends down. Okay, guys, I'll go back. I'll get my job back. I'll go see George Moscone. So he walks into the mayor's office, and George, George was such a, uh, he, could, he could charm a, a snake. George just was so gregarious, um, such a powerful man uh, with the gift of gab, 
and, and able to convince anybody of anything. Uh, and Dan White says, George, I want my job back. Do you want to go White over says, Dan White says, if it's up to me, George, you got you. Dan, Dan White says to George, I want my job back. And George says, it's up to me, Dan. You have the job. You got your job back. Well, Dan's leaving the Hall of Justice very comfortable with himself, knowing that he's getting his job back. As he walks by Harvey Melk's office, he hears Harvey Melk on the phone with George. And basically what Harvey is saying is, you can't give that Dan White back his job. He can't get his job back. He is so conservative. We don't want him back on this board. So Dan knows that Harvey is, is backdooring him. And he is such a straight guy and gullible. He goes home believing George is going to do the right thing. He told me I was getting my job back. Whole time, he's not sleeping, not sleeping with his wife. He's downstairs in the den mulling over a bunch of articles where his father was a hero fireman. He's, he's stressing over whether George is going to keep his word. Well, that Monday morning, the phone rings and Dan answers it. It's a woman from a local radio station. And she says, Dan, do you know that uh, the mayor is going to appoint somebody else to your seat at 11 o'clock? And Dan said, oh, no, no, no. The mayor is going to give me back my job back. So he hangs up on her. The phone rings again. It's Denise Abkar, his uh, assistant in the Board of Supervisors. And she says, Dan, at 11 o'clock today, the mayor is appointing a replacement. It's not going to be you. Dan says, I'll be right down. He puts on his police revolver, puts multiple rounds in his pocket, gets in his car, drives to the city hall, walks into the mayor's office. He greets the mayor's secretary, Sir Capitini, and he said, I want to see the mayor. She says, okay, Dan. She rings into George's office. George opens the door, says, come on in, Dan. Takes Dan into the back ante room. And he says, sit down, Dan. I'll pour us each a drink. And Dan looks at him and Dan, Dan wasn't a drinker. I don't want to drink. I want to know why I'm not getting my job back. And, and George says, well, Dan, it's politics. And I've decided you're not the right person for the job. Dan in his confession says his whole head started to feel flush and he felt he was gonna blow the top off his head. He got angry. He took out his gun, shot the mayor. And when the mayor was on the ground, put two more bullets in him. He then left and did the exact same thing in Harvey's office. The first one in that door that saw Dan White was Diane Feinstein. She says, oh, Dan, I just got back from vacation. Come in here, I wanna to talk to you. Her and Dan were very close. Dan White was Diane Feinstein's protege. She was also one of those liberal conservative votes. Dan says, I'll be right with you, Diane. Walks into Harvey's office, 
He said, Harvey smirked at him. He, Harvey knew what was going on. And so he said, I took out the gun and I shot Harvey. And then I gave him two more shots. We would find out later these were coup de grace. There was no way either Harvey or George would have survived those last two shots. Uh, when I arrived at City Hall, all the way there, I am convinced that this is all going to tie into Jonestown. Because if you remember, these were the people that put Mayor George Moscone into office. It was Jim Jones and his disciples that voted for George Moscone in a very close San Francisco election. So when Jonestown's happened, there were articles in the paper that said that some of these disciples that escaped the shooting would be coming to San Francisco to settle scores with certain politicians. So driving to City Hall, the last thing on my mind is my friend Dan White shot and killed the mayor and Harvey Milk. I'm thinking it's all about Jonestown. When I'm walking up the stairs to the mayor's office, at the top of the stairs, I'm met by a police sergeant, a plainclothes inspector uh, that was Mayor George Moscone's bodyguard by the name of Jim Molinari. Jim was a dear friend. I said, Jim, what's going on? He said, the mayor's dead, Frank. I said, Jesus, Jim, the mayor's dead? Do we have a suspect? And the words out of his mouth were like a sledgehammer hitting me over the head. He says, yeah, your friend Dan White. I said, Dan White? Dan White? And all of a sudden, my head is in a whirl. I'm thinking, Dan White, the all-American boy, the guy that couldn't swear, the guy that would open the door for a lady, takes a gun and kills two people? I didn't know about uh, Harvey Milk's murder yet, but I can't believe that he would shoot and kill the mayor. Unbelievable. I walk in. I see the mayor on the ground. He's got a cigarette in his hand, a bottle of either bourbon or scotch on the table, two shot glasses. And I'm thinking, oh, I know I have a job to do. So I walk out of the mayor's ante room into his main office. I'm going towards the phone. And on the phone is a deputy chief uh, from the inspector's bureau. And he looks at me and he says, Frank, uh, Dan White is at Northern Station. Uh, that deputy chief was Jeremiah Taylor. I, I said, thank you, chief. And I leave with two district attorneys that showed up and we all run over to Northern Station. By that time, two other homicide detectives had removed Dan White from Northern Station and taken him to the Hall of Justice. When I walk in to the Hall, Hall of Justice, room 450, the homicide detail. I head straight towards the interrogation room. I open the door and there's Dan sitting there. And I look at him. He stood up. I'm face to face with him. I'm quite angry. He said, how could you be so, so stupid? Here's a guy that idolized me. I respected him like a kid brother. And now I'm investigating him for two murders. One, the mayor of the city and the other, a supervisor of the city. I, I can't believe what a day this is turning out to be. And he, he looked at me 
And it was like all the emotions, because at Northern Station, he told the police officers there, I'm not talking. I'm, I'm taking my rights uh, to remain silent. Now he's looking at one of his best friends, Frank Thousand. He says, Frank, I got to tell you everything. I got to tell you everything. And it was like the lid blown off a pressure cooker. He's, he starts crying. His body's convulsing. So I want to tell you the whole story. I said, stop, stop. If we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. I went to my desk. I got my tape recorder. I got a fresh cassette. I looked around. I saw Eddie Erlatz. I said, Eddie, please sit in with me. He says, absolutely, Frank. So Eddie goes in with me. It's always best to have two investigators interview a suspect. Not knowing what the hell happened up at City Hall, I'm trying to work off of what Dan White's telling me. So I let Dan do a narrative. I said, I respect you as a policeman, as a fireman, and as a paratrooper. I know who you are. Please tell me what happened today. What led up to the shooting of Mayor George Moscone and by that time, I knew Harvey Milk, and he does. He gives me a narrative, and I worked off that narrative. People would question, why didn't you just hammer him left and right about why he circumvented the front door, climbed through a window with his gun? And the answer is simple. I had no knowledge that those events even occurred. I had to work off what Dan White was telling me. Uh, right, and he also reloaded the gun after he left Moscone's office too, right? He had to empty those five rounds uh, expended cartridges. He had to reload on his way down to Harvey Milk. As far as I was concerned, these were two first-degree murder cases. But if you want to be as lenient as you can, you might say, well, uh, crime of passion against George Moscone which is manslaughter, but when he unloads and reloads and heads down to Harvey Milk, uh, that's premeditation. That's first-degree murder. Well, we all know what the jury came back with. They came back with um, two voluntary manslaughter charges. Dan White would do six or seven years, and the city erupted. And it was everybody, not just the gay community. The entire city erupted that this was not justice. And Dan White knew it wasn't justice. He had planned on committing suicide that day. It was his wife who he had called to say goodbye. And she talked him out of not committing suicide. She talked him to go to St. Mary's Cathedral and she'd come down and they would surrender Dan to Northern Station. So it wouldn't be for years later that I would find out the truth from Dan White. And what was that? When Dan White was released from prison, everybody wanted to know where he was. It was just something that the press and the public wanted to know. Well, Dan White was down in Los Angeles. One night I'm sitting at home, my phone rings. He uses a name other than Dan White, but I knew it was Dan White. And he says, I'd like to see you, Frank. Uh, I want you to know what happened that day. And I want to tell you the whole truth. Well, as an investigator, I, uh, I, I decide I have to go down and find out the whole truth. So I flew down to LA. 
I met with Dan White. He was wearing a disguise, baseball cap, sunglasses, uh, still the very clean cut, all American boy, uh, fit as a fiddle. He said that he doesn't, he wasn't driving. He wasn't uh, taking a cab. He wasn't using a bus that he would walk wherever he wanted to go. So I spent, I think two days, maybe three days with Dan. The first day was just getting reacquainted. Uh, the second day was at uh, the 1984 Olympics. Uh, Dan White's family had sent him tickets to some boxing matches and to some field track and field events. And I was with Dan for those two days. The second day, we're sitting out in the court courtyard around lunchtime. We both had bought a hot dog, potato chips, and a Coca-Cola. And we're sitting there talking. And I said, Dan, before I head back to San Francisco, I have to know what happened that day. What the hell happened, Dan? And he looked at me and says, you know, Frank, I really lost it. I said, God, you really did, Dan. I said, still to this day, I can't believe you did what you did. He said, no, I, I can't either. But it was going to be a lot worse, Frank. And I looked at him. Now, <laughs> you talk about knocking me out of the chair. He's telling me it's going to be a lot worse. He said, what are you talking about, Dan? He said, do you remember I had extra bullets in my pocket? I, I, I said, yeah. He said, well, I had 21 bullets. I had a five-shot revolver. I had five for George. Five for Harvey. I had five for Willie Brown, state supervisor, uh, one of the Democratic leaders in California, would end up being San Francisco mayor. And I'm, I'm stunned. And he says the last five were for Carol Ruth Silver, one of the, the board members that he apparently, that he apparently uh, wasn't pleased to see. Anyhow, right, so he was going to kill four people, not two. So that's really incredible. He, he was, was going to kill four people. It was interesting, too, that he became friends with Sirhan and Sirhan in jail. Like, he was brothers with Sirhan Sirhan, which is really a remarkable aspect of that story. But there's a lot. I mean, i got to wrap this up pretty soon, guys. But there's a lot more in this book. We covered two of the cases you had. But you have cases on some of the gang stuff in Chinatown. Very interesting Family assault cases, the Luigi Aranda case with the Hells Angels, the Pavageau case. I mean, uh, there's just so many more. You have so much history and you know criminal knowledge in this book. So I commend you for writing it. Um, is there anything you'd like to add, guys, or anything I missed before we kind of put the book into this discussion about your book, San Francisco Homicide Inspector, 5 Henry 7? Uh, the only thing I'd like to add, and this just happened in the last couple of days, our book is, it's been out now uh, maybe two to three months, and uh, it's done very, very well. I, I received a, a message from the president of the San Francisco Police Officers Association. Uh, she felt the book was absolutely fantastic. Uh, she placed an order for 500 copies, uh, she wants to give them out to San Francisco police, policemen so that they can see what a dedicated cop 
life is like, and it could be used as a training uh, book for future rookie police officers. Congratulations, that's great, really awesome. Uh, Duffy, is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, I would just, uh, I would just like to say that you know, it's as a journalist, uh, it was uh, such a, a, a pleasure and delight to work with Frank on this book. His his honesty, not just and and his attention to detail, not just about his cases, but uh, even in his personal life and the and his emotional feelings about a lot of these cases things you don't hear from cops very often. And I, we've gotten a lot of feedback from people who are saluting him for being, you know, both, both truthful yet vulnerable about his own doubts and his own questions and his own cases where there's a couple that got overturned uh, and this is general fairness overall. And I think anybody who picks this up, whether you're a true crime fan or not, will, will find a, a pretty amazing story. Yeah, there's a lot there. The whole story of Massey, death penalty. There's a lot of things about procedural, uh, criminal procedure too. So there's a there's a whole just the amount of knowledge that's in this book. I commend both of you, and thank you so much for your time. I will include the contact information for each of you. Each separately have your own website, and those websites are www.frankbalzon, F-A-L-Z-O-N, and then DuffyJennings.com. People can find out more about each of you guys through that and contact you as well, both through those websites, correct? Yes, and you can purchase the book not only – you can purchase autographed copies at either of those websites, or you can purchase them online at Amazon uh, and BarnesandNoble.com and other online retailers. And you are selling signed copies through one of your websites, correct? Both of them. Both of them, so you can get either signed one, copies. Yes. Excellent. And uh, thank you again. And the title of the book, excellent book, excellent read. I read the whole thing cover to cover. Title of it is again, San Francisco Homicide Inspector 507. My inside story of the Night Stalker case, City Hall murders, zebra killings, Chinatown gang wars, and the city under siege just published 2022. And the authors are Frank Falzon and Duffy Jennings. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, William. Thanks a lot, William. All right, stay there. Stay there.